The following is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Chorus Entertainment. Well, hello there and welcome to the Disability Law Show. Good to have you around for the hour. Hopefully you stick around for the entire thing. You will learn a lot, that is for sure. John Scholes here and joining me from St. Firu to Mark and ST Lawyers uh, would be James Fireman and Tamar Agopian. Reach out to either of them anytime. Uh, phone number to uh, get a hold of them or their respective teams. That's easy to use as well. one 855 821 Help at disabilityrights.ca is the email address. Okay, guys, tons to get through, but we always warm up with the uh, case of the day or a week that was tomorrow. I think you're taking a, taking a crack at this one today. What's going on? Yeah, so so the crack is this. I uh, As I shuffle around my life because my husband's been recalled back to work, I was thinking about this work-from-home environment. And so let me put some, some context into this. Okay. You know, after COVID hit, um, you know, obviously there were many workplaces that were shut down, others who relegated from, you know, permanent work from home situations. And, you know, thankfully, we've I think we're well past the other side of all of that. And so what we're seeing as a trend, uh, at least in Ontario and certainly across the country and in major businesses, I'm thinking of banks and insurance companies in particular, is that they are asking their uh, workforce to come into the office either on set days or regular days and the work from home arrangements are either non-existent or being dispelled with and the reason why this is interesting and and why i was thinking about it other than my own personal circumstances of course is that because we have seen insurers in the context of their analysis of what people can do in occupations, either their own occupation or any occupation, put into the thought process of, well, you know, you could be working from home and that's going to be the solution to everything of your disability and in and of itself will disentitle you. We talk about a lot on our shows about what goes into the insurance company's review of the analysis of whether or not someone meets the test of total disability. It's a very narrow test. Uh, certainly as the law interprets it. Uh, Much tougher, I think, on a case-by-case basis, but in my mind, it shouldn't be. Can this individual work, and can they work either at the job that they were doing at the time that they became disabled, or in the alternative, after typically the two-year mark, can they do anything in the world, anything for which they have the education, training, and experience? And I sometimes scratch my head, as to why the work from home has become the fallback position for insurance companies. And I think it's partly to do with, you know, when we think about some disabilities that perhaps, you know, you you can't be in a setting where you've got people around you. I think about my clients who have migraines or, um, you know, health conditions like mental health conditions that prevent them from being around other people or interacting with other people. Certainly the traditional work environment would be difficult for them to overcome with their health issues. I think about uh, you know my client base that have you know, back injuries, for example. You know, could a work from home be a better scenario than having to get you know an ergonomic assessment in the work setting? You know, get a work stand desk, desk this kind of thing. It, I, I don't want to generalize too much, except to say that I think insurers want to generalize and use this as a reason to justify cutting off claims prematurely. They're, they're going to find a whole host of reasons, right, guys? And we, and we talk about this a lot. But this one in particular, I think, may not be as strong 
if you've got a workforce or a trend in the work setting where people are actually being physically being sent back to that work setting, whether it be, uh, you know, an office or uh, a factory or wherever else that people might be working. And I think that it was too easy for insurers to say, this is now the new norm and working from home is absolutely a viable alternative work setting or perhaps the work setting that, you know, you can be going back to given your ongoing health issues. And what I think is even more problematic for insurers is the fact that they're doing that to their own workforce. So it will be, you know, hypocrisy upon hypocrisy. And, and, and we see this a lot with insurance companies, but when they're actually sending their own people back um, and for, and in some cases forcing that return, saying you must be in your work setting physically in that work setting two or three days a week at least, that tells me that they can't necessarily turn around they will they they may uh but it will be a great conversation to have the next time i see that kind of a denial with the insurer to say but hang on what is your work from home policy and are you doing that to your own people and so now you're telling my client that they can um work from home when in fact most employers are actually asking people to come back so i wanted to get a lens on this not necessarily on the employment side of things which we have a whole show dedicated to that people can listen to that and see our website uh, around that work from home right but more specifically how that's going to play itself out in the disability world in the post-covid world right where we're, we're seeing this trend moving away what do you guys think I, I, it's such an interesting topic and it's one that has certainly broader application as well i like to think of this as the insurer's shorthand when they see particular problems. There's a, this knee-jerk reaction to a superficial solution. And so what you're talking about here, of course, is um, the, the work-from-home solution. And you alluded to another one. Uh, you're talking about those who have back issues. We constantly see that you know someone will have a back issue that prevents them from being able to sit or stand for more than 20 or 30 minutes. And I know before I look in the insurance file that somewhere in there, the claims handler is going to say, oh, well, that's no problem. We'll just get them a sit-stand desk <laughs> because then they can rotate <laughs> between. But the practical reality of these superficial solutions is that they're just that. They're superficial. They're not actually solutions. And what happens in practice when these are attempted is there is an issue of stamina. That's always going to be the problem. And so... There is something that may make sense when you just think about it very casually. But for example, this at stand desk is a solution for someone with a severe back injury that may allow them to extend the 20 to 30 minute limit that they have to an hour, maybe even an hour and a half on a good day. But then they're out <laughs> then they're out for the rest of the day, probably the next day and the day after that. It isn't a solution that is going to allow most people that have that, that type of issue to work an eight-hour day, let alone an eight-hour day, five days a week, let alone five days a week, week after week after week. The solution is to fix the disability. It's not to find a temporary Band-Aid that will allow you to perhaps extend with a great amount of distress to the, to the person who's insured for a limited amount of time. And that's the same when you're looking at a, oh, well, you can just work from home now because 
obviously there are more at-home jobs that are available. That is just not going to be a viable solution for most people. And so I think when you're considering this, if you're in the disability claim process and you're being denied because the insurer is coming up with a solution that they say can work in your scenario, but you know cannot, and your doctors agree cannot work for you, usually because of an issue of stamina or practicality or what have you. Don't accept what the insurer is saying. Don't accept that simply because they're asserting what might theoretically be a solution, but in practice is not. Don't assume that they're correct and that they're going to win. These are arguments that we have with insurers all the time, and we win. They know we're going to win if it ever was in front of a judge, and so they come to the table and they pay. So I, I think that's really the takeaway here is if you know it doesn't work for you, then it's not going to be a winner for the insurer. Guys, good stuff. Want to get into our first email of the show. Again, anytime you want to send one along, it may appear on a future show for sure, and that is uh, help at disabilityrights.ca. Marlene's up uh, first. These guys have a question about long-term disability. I live in Manitoba and recently, again, got forms to fill out about my disability, although they know it's permanent and there's no future treatment. One form is for my doctor to fill out and the other is a financial statement that I have to fill out. On the doctor's form, I am to give consent for her to give my entire medical file to the insurer, which I always tell her no, but that is my business and uh, what, I got to, what I got to her about. Uh, on the financial statement, they have thrown in there that I am to sign uh, to give them access to my SIN for income tax access, which is fine. But they also want access to my personal medical files from everywhere, rehab, physio, pharmacy, etc., etc., and my medical history. What? That has to do with my finances and whether I'm attending school or not. I have no idea, but I don't feel what I share outside my uh, compensable disability with my doctor is their business. That is personal and between my doctor and me. Do I have any rights? Do they have rights to such personal information? I would greatly appreciate any information on this. I find this completely unsettling and feel that this is a violation of my privacy. Looking forward to hearing your response. Wow. What do you think? Yeah. Great email. Great email. And so, look, I'm going to try and tackle bits of this. Um, you know, John, it can be invasive, and I understand that completely. It can be invasive because the insurer has these standard forms, which have been approved, by the way, by the insurance bureau, and that those forms do include details around your financial information, all the doctors you are seeing, all the treatment providers. Uh, yes, questions around: Are you doing any volunteer work? Are you going to school? Are you doing any retraining? This can all be contained in the various types of forms that I've seen in these disability claims files. And so I can understand the hesitation. But the other side of this is if Marlene has nothing to hide, there is nothing to be concerned about. And in fact, I would say the more information she provides, especially about all of her health issues and treatment, the better it is for her claim. It, you know, insurance companies are very cynical when they look at these things. And that cynicism bleeds into the kinds of questions that they ask. And I absolutely understand Marlene's sentiment of, look, they're invading my privacy and why are they asking me all these questions and it's not relevant. And you're right, Marlene, there's a lot of things that, that these insurance adjusters ask that are not relevant. But the resistance of that information, unfortunately, sometimes triggers unnecessarily you know, red flags for your claim and the review of your claim. So my advice as a starting point is always to provide as much information to the insurer as possible. 
as it relates to the medical information. Hmm. Okay. That has to be put over because if the disability has different components to it, you don't want to leave anything out. And I get that it's personal with the information that you share with your doctor, but if you restrict the insurer from that information, the, the knee-jerk reaction from the insurer is just to simply deny the claim or cut off the claim. But maybe we should pick this up on our uh, on our next segment, John. Absolutely. I know, James, you probably got something to say about this and a lot more of your emails and other contact information, mydisabilityquestions.com, by the way, you can use that website as well. But in the meantime, as we get to a break here, here is that number, one 855 and help at We'll continue. Lots more Disability Law Show is on the way. You're listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Chorus Entertainment. And welcome back to the Disability Law Show. Tamar Agopian and James Fireman are your professionals on site and after the show. Of course, you can always reach out encouraged to do so by phone. That would be one 821 5900 Email help at disabilityrights.ca. James, just before the break, we got into Marlene's email. They're asking for all kinds of medical information, financial information, just trying to dig deep on it what do you think pal well marlene said asked something in her email she said do i have rights and obviously there's a concern marlene has about sharing her personal information and she's certainly not alone there are a lot of people that have very legitimate concerns about who has access to their information and there are all sorts of reasons why one might be concerned and we don't really need to go down that road but when you want to engage disability insurance, you have to abide by the contract, the policy. And the policy gives the insurance, the insurer, the ability to go fairly deep into your history and to understand a lot about what's going on. You don't have to provide it to. Them. But if you don't, you shouldn't expect the insurer to pay your benefits because that is part of the policy. And there's a legitimate reason for it, too. This isn't just the insurer trying to be nosy and trying to get under your skin. I don't, uh, you know, I'm not in the position often of defending an insurer's actions. But in this particular case, there is a legitimate reason why an insurer will want more information than you may think they need. And the reason for it is because they don't know what they don't know. They don't know that some of the documents that they're requesting are entirely irrelevant because sometimes they are relevant. For other people, they may well be relevant and they're entitled to look behind that and see whether or not there's something there. Now, that entitlement um, doesn't extend to forever. There are limits on that for sure. And if you have concerns about what those limits are, you can certainly give us a call and we're happy to talk about that. But when you're talking about your medical information, particularly around the time of the disability and even to some extent before that, and looking at your treatment records and your financial statements from the time of disability onwards, those are going to be relevant. That's just the reality of it. The insurer is going to be entitled to those. And that is something during the process that if you want to get your benefits, you're going to have to turn that over so the insurer can satisfy themselves that you meet the definition of disabled under the policy and there isn't anything that would be available to them to offset what they have to pay on a monthly basis. 
And that is Marlene. Appreciate the uh, reach out, Marlene. You can always continue with that phone call. Guys want to move down. As I did mention uh, just before the break, mydisabilityquestions.com. Always an option for you to ask questions that may appear on this show. So there you go. Uh, first one for the show today, guys, says, I am a right-hand dominant 56-year-old woman who has worked in manual labor jobs my whole career. I broke my right wrist in an accident. It wasn't aligned properly in the ER, and I have had ongoing pain and limited range of motion since. I went back to work on light duty, but it was unsuccessful, and my employer wanted me to go off again. I've been on LTD since March 2020. I had numerous assessments since, which included an eight-hour assessment that uh, indicated I was only suitable for sedentary work. LTD tried to cut me off in December of 2022, but reversed their decision. Recently, LTD told me that they were going to retrain me. I was sent for aggressive therapies, and I did not respond well, so they cut back on the therapy. Now, they're telling me that to retrain me, I must take computer courses, never having worked in a professional office environment. They also told me that I have to go on an OT session scheduled during the holidays, and I can't visit my sick dad, who's suffering from cancer and located in another city, a day away by car. I am so stressed out over everything, including LTD telling me I'm not allowed to visit my family over Christmas. I will not be successful with the retraining or even be able to find work in an office at 56. I feel I have skills, but LTD has not explored what I might be able to do, targeted uh, training for my skills. What do I do? Wow. Uh, yeah. I, feel like, I, I, feel, I feel like we could probably spend the entire show, maybe two shows, just talking about this particular question for mydisabilityquestions.com. There is a lot going on here. So let's talk about it. Let's get into it. And we may take this entire session, this entire segment, go into the next, and that's fine. So first, the what I want to address here is the issue of retraining, whether or not it's appropriate. So I'm not sure the name of uh, the person who wrote in, this was to mydisabilityquestions.com, but the, the lady who wrote in has been working in a manual labor job her entire career and she's 56 years old. Mm-hmm. I don't know her level of education. She hasn't indicated that, uh, but if she hasn't had any training in an office setting, we can assume that she is in no way qualified for any office type of work and at 56 years old it's fairly unreasonable to assume that she's simply going to be able to retrain herself add to that that in order to be able to retrain herself to be able to work in an office setting there is very few scenarios where she's going to be able to work in an office uh, office setting or even retrain where she's going to be able to achieve that without being able to use her right wrist, right. which is what has been injured in the first place. Because the retraining is going to, going to involve undoubtedly an awful lot of computer use and being able to understand how to use the computer in order to do those sedentary jobs, something that she simply hasn't been doing. In fact, she even said part of it is taking computer courses. So on the surface, this seems entirely unreasonable and the person writing in here has recognized that. She's even said, there's no way that she's going to be able to do this. And she's probably right. So what do you do about this? Leaving aside for a moment the other issue about visiting uh, her family and her ailing father, uh, which I'll get to, but just looking at the issue of the insurer's plan for retraining generally and not looking at the timing of it, what needs to happen here is this needs to be filtered through the, the this person's 
medical team through her family doctor. If she has a specialist, perhaps there's an orthopedic surgeon that she's been seeing, then the orthopedic surgeon should comment on this plan as well too. And what should be commented on here isn't simply the retraining, but the viability of sedentary work given her injury. In other words, even if she could manage with the training, which they should, the doctor and the specialist should both comment on, would she be able to do a, a sedentary job on a full-time basis? And if not, what, to what extent would she be able to do this going forward? And if she has the support of her family doctor and her specialist and gets that in writing and provides that to the insurer, it puts the insurer in a difficult spot. Now, that doesn't mean the insurer is all of a sudden going to change their mind and say, okay, you're right, because it seems quite clear to me the insurer is being aggressive. They are looking for a way out of this policy, and they may well just maintain their position despite being told by treating doctors that it is unreasonable. But if you've given them the opportunity to review a, a an opinion from both the family doctor and a specialist, and they still maintain their position, now they're exposed not just to paying the benefits on an ongoing basis if they cut you off, but also potentially to punitive damages. Because now it should be very clear to anyone who's looking at this that the insurer is acting unreasonably, that they are ignoring what the treating doctors are saying. And that is especially true if the treating doctors are saying not only is she not going to be able to do this, but making her submit to this type of, uh, of therapy and this type of retraining is actually going to have a negative impact. Now, obviously, I don't know enough about her situation, nor do I have the medical qualifications to say that, but if that is the opinion of her family doctor and or her specialist, that really puts the insurer in a bind. Again, that doesn't necessarily mean that the insurer is going to change their opinion, but if they don't, then you have a very valuable lawsuit against the insurer, and it's a legal claim that the insurer is going to come to the table very quickly on. And this is all before we even look at what the insurer is doing in terms of the timing. And so the other element here is that she has said that uh, she had plans to visit her family over Christmas. And in particular, if I recall correctly, uh, her father is very sick. He's got cancer. And so obviously, uh, you know, if someone is looking at this, it's entirely unreasonable to say to someone that they can't go visit their family over Christmas. And if the timing doesn't work for the insurer's therapy, even if the therapy were reasonable, it would be entirely unreasonable for the insurer to insist that this happen right now. She's been on claim since March of 2020. Why it is that the insurer has to have this therapy now is there's no justification there's no reason why the therapy needs to happen over the holiday it is simply the insurer being difficult and if they were to maintain that and cut her off because of it then they would be in even worse position than just for having forced her to do the treatment in any case so this is a situation where the insurers really put themselves in a difficult spot and the the person writing in here is certainly going to be in the driver's seat and my advice is very simple in this case go visit your family get your doctors to take a look at it and provide the opinion in writing but whatever they say 
uh, you know, life is short and this is too important. And you have a, a father who's suffering from cancer and it's the holidays. Go visit. Go yeah. visit. Go. Tell your insurer that that's what you're going to do. And whatever the consequences of are uh, are of that, deal with that afterwards because there are ways to deal with it. And if the insurer maintains that position, they are going to be in an awful lot of hot water. Tamar? Yeah, I, you know, this is the aggressive, the aggressiveness. I think that's what really resonated with me with this uh, was how aggressive the insurance company is being and difficult and intransigent. Why? I agree with you, James, that the advice here should be go see your doctor and, and travel. Uh, and see your family members. But but on top of that, th- two things I want to comment on. Number one, if you're being met with barriers with the particular adjuster that you're dealing with, or maybe it's their rehabilitation people, th- at this stage of, of this woman's claim, there could be a couple of people she's dealing with that are essentially representatives of the insurer. The adjuster itself, the person who is actually approving and paying d- disability benefits, and then it could be the OT or the rehab provider, and then there could be a third individual who manages that between the adjuster and the rehab facility. Um, and they've got a variety of different names, you know, rehab specialists and this kind of thing. But regardless, if any one of those or all of those individuals are being difficult in a situation like this, you have other recourse, which includes going a level above any of those people, particularly the adjuster. Make some noise. Make it difficult. Talk to a manager. Insist on speaking to someone other than the person who's telling you no, because they have systems in place where that gets back to the adjuster, him or herself, in the way that they're treating and conducting and adjudicating your claim. So that's the one element here that I really want to emphasize is that you don't necessarily have to kowtow to the insurer, especially if you've got your own doctors backing you up. The other comment I was going to make is this idea of the assessment of her saying that she can do sedentary work. Let's break that down. Sedentary work in of itself is work that essentially you're doing sitting down. So certainly very different than the labor intensive type work that she's been doing her whole career. But just because she can sit for a long period of time doesn't mean that she can use her right hand repeatedly in front of a computer or other answering phones or other things you're going to have to do in that setting. And I think I can I can't agree with James Moore on this about this being a great area where we can challenge the insurer on these kinds of loose assumptions. So they send her off to an assessment. Assessment says one thing. They may use that at the end to cut off her claim prematurely. And you can see already that it's flawed because the disability in and of itself is to the right hand doesn't necessarily mean the testing for the sitting down makes sense in her context. So. The clear takeaway here is obviously he the, the different pieces of advice you've heard from myself and James, but also that if this doesn't end in the way that it should, which is ongoing payment of disability benefits, this is a great opportunity to assert legal rights, which no doubt the insurer will come to the table more reasonably than it seems they are in the, in the situation as described. 
short break. Lots more on the way. Here's the contact in the meantime, 1-855-821-5900. Help at disabilityrights.ca. We'll continue with the Disability Law Show. Hang in there. You're listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Chorus Entertainment. Welcome back. Disability Law Show. Good to go here. James Fireman, Tamara Gopian, reachable anytime. 1-855-821-5900. Help at disabilityrights.ca. Okay, guys, moving on down the list to AJ. says, guys, listen to your show. It's so helpful. Thank you for that. Uh, My wife died from stage four cancer, and I was helping her as a husband slash caregiver for those four painful years. She died in a traumatic fashion. I tried to go back to work, but I experienced overwhelming grief, trauma-induced depression, anxiety, panic attacks, and major sleeping problems. My doctors and professional counselors have all supported that I be off work for almost a year now. I'm still struggling, and my work has in many ways moved on without me. My question relates to if my doctor and the insurance company are both pressuring me to try to work, and I feel in this new life that this doesn't feel right in terms of me taking positive steps towards health and peace and finding supportive things. Am I able to ask my company HR if they would consider a severance package in uh, since I've worked there for over 30 years and I'm close to ret- uh, early retirement anyway? What options should I try or could I try? I'm going to jump in on this one because this has both some employment elements to it and some disability elements to it. And you know, myself and some other members of our team actually have a hybrid practice and we do these two major areas of our uh, firm's expertise. And so the the first place I want to start is to be very directive to AJ's question around, look, can I approach HR for some kind of a severance package? And, and the tough part with uh, employees is that just because they want a severance package doesn't mean that they're entitled to a severance package. And my worry always with individuals actually broaching HR for something like this is, well, HR can simply just say no. And your motives then are revealed that you're not interested in coming back to work. And when you've been on the path of potentially being on a disability claim, that can further complicate the disability element of it too. Now, this is not to say that AJ shouldn't. It's just if he's asking for our advice, you know, I've got to say I'd be hesitant to have him broach this without there being some other basis to assert some kind of a severance to HR. I think the other options would be potentially attempting the return Sometimes that in and of itself can prompt the employer um, to provide other options like a severance or retirement. Um, It could be that AJ wants to continue to prolong his disability claim. That's the other avenue that that could be available here, but that's got to be medically supported. And so when the question relates to, look, um, you know, the insurance company is trying to pressure me back to work, that shouldn't be part of the equation, AJ. It should never be part of the equation of the insurance company's incentive or pressures because it doesn't really matter in my mind what the insurer wants. The insurer wants to stop paying you. It doesn't matter when. They never want to pay the disability benefit. And so if there's an opportunity to cut off the claim, they're going to do that. The The key here is to have this discussion with your own medical team. Have that discussion with your doctor about not feeling ready, not having continuing symptoms perhaps. Perhaps there's someone else also treating AJ that's more supportive of him remaining off work and not returning at this time. Maybe that's the person to lean on like a psychotherapist or a counselor. But regardless, you want to follow that medical advice on the choices that you make about whether or not to return back to work. 
And in some ways, that's a separate and apart decision from what do you do with your employment in and of itself. Because we say this a lot. You don't actually have to be employed at the time that you, uh, you know, get cut off from your claim or have to challenge your claim. In other words, you know, for example, I'm dealing with someone's claim right now where they were terminated while on disability. Then after uh, their disability ended, um, you know, they're now challenging the disability insurer. And the question they're asking me is, well, look, do I still have coverage because I was terminated while I was on claim? Does that mean that I don't have a right to assert a claim against the insurance company? And, and, the, and the answer to that is no, because this person's claim crystallized while they were still covered and still employed. And so similarly with AJ, when you think about, okay, what are my options here? You've got to think about health number one, get that advice, and then employment flows from that. And again, the insurer's motives are are tertiary, not relevant to that assessment of what you do. James, what do you think? Well, I want to address the second part of AJ's question, which was posed more as a hypothetical. He wrote, what happens if my doctor and insurance company are both pressuring me to try and return to work and then ask about the severance package? And the assumption there is if your doctor, both your doctor and the insurance company are pressuring you back to work, then your benefits are probably going to end. And that's probably a correct assumption because it's not so much about your insurer. I agree with you on that, Tamar. But once you have the your own doctor saying you should try going back to work, it's very hard to maintain that you are entitled to ongoing benefits if you don't at least try. That's just the reality of it. Unless it's one particular specialist, but your GP and other specialists are saying you can't work. But save and except for that scenario, if you lose the support of your doctor insofar as being off work, you probably expect benefits to end. And the reason I'm highlighting that is because for most people, if you are on claim and you continue to have the support of your doctor, looking at a severance package almost never makes sense, even if you're not initiating it, even if it's something that's being floated by your employer. And the reason is because virtually all policies, not all, but virtually all policies, especially group policies, are going to have language in there that says that if you get severance while while you are receiving disability benefits, then your insurer is titled to offset that amount for every period that you're receiving it. Basically meaning that for however long your severance is paid, it's going to wipe out your disability benefits for that period of time. You get six months of severance, it means next six months you're not going to get disability benefits. And so when we're looking at someone that has both a disability and an employment issue, typically we like to put off dealing with the employment matter until we finish dealing with the disability matter. Sometimes you don't have a choice, but when you do, it's preferable to wait until after. Guys, want to slide into another quick break? We got some more time on the other side, more time for emails. And as I mentioned earlier, we're going to uh, get into mydisabilityquestions.com, a question that just came in from there. So we appreciate that. And more email on the other side if we have time as well. But to reach out to uh, James and Tamar, 1 855 821 5900. That's toll free and confidential. Your phone call, of course. If, uh, there's no charge just to pick up a phone and ask a couple questions for either of them or their team. You can always send an email in and it might appear in a future show, if that's cool. Help at disabilityrights.ca. We'll continue with more of the Disability Law Show. Stand by. You're listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Chorus Entertainment. 
You bet. Disability Law Show continues. James Fireman, Tamara Gopi, and reach out to them anytime for your own conversation, for yourself, colleague, family member, someone who's dealing with that insurance company. Uh, They say call. Just do it. 1-855-821-5900. Help at disabilityrights.ca. And from the website, we call mydisabilityquestions.com. This one's a beauty. It's searchable, which means the database is open to you to see if your question or one similar has been asked. Just type it in there and leave it anonymously. It will get answered and it may appear on this show too. Just like this one, guy says, hello, uh, do I have to tell the branch manager and or HR about all my health issues? Also, do you help people to apply for LTD? Would I qualify? Okay. Well, the would I qualify, I just don't know because I have absolutely no information about <laughs> what, the, what, what, what the dis- disability is. So I'm going to deal with that right away and that's done. Uh, the rest of the question though is quite interesting. And so, uh, hello, do I have to tell the branch manager and or HR about all my health issues? So the answer is mostly no, certainly not all of your health issues. The entitlement for your employer to understand about your disability disabling condition is very different than the entitlement for the insurer. Mm -hmm. Your insurer needs to understand at a very granular level what is going on. They need to have access, not just to the broad opinions of your doctors saying that you can't work, but what underlies that, the clinical notes and records, the testing, understanding the treatment that you've had, the diagnosis, the prognosis, all of that is relevant for your insurer. Your employer is very different, though. Your employer only needs to know whether or not you're capable of working. And if not, they're entitled to know about your prognosis. They're entitled to know when you are likely going to be able to return to work. If you're in a situation where a return to work is possible, then they're entitled to know about your limitations and restrictions. But they're still not entitled to know the specifics. They're not even entitled to know the diagnosis. They're not entitled to know specifically what it is that's going on with you. So there are very specific limits about what an employer might be entitled to as, oppo- as opposed to your insurer. And it's really useful uh, to understand those differences. And if it's a question for you, if you're not sure, then as it turns out, we have lawyers such as Tamar who practice in both LTD and disability. And I'm curious, Tamar, did I get that mostly right? <laughs> you did. I was so impressed, James. I was like, "Oh, okay." He's been listening to our employment shows. No, I'm uh, I'm being cheeky about it, but it's it's absolutely true that you know when you're thinking about how much information to share, if any, with your employer, you know you can edit yourself. But the opposite is true when it comes to the disability insurer, which is actually what we were talking about at the top of the show. You know, you want to provide when with Merlene's email. You want to provide as much information as you can to the disability insurer about the basis of your disability. And I think, you know, when you think about, well, I actually want to tackle this question of, you know, do I qualify? You know, that's a question to talk to your doctors about. And it, and it's a combination between what the doctor's advising and what you're reporting. And so just bear in mind when you're going through this process of disability, you want to think about the essential duties of your job. You want to think about the key limitations that you have as a result of your health. And if those two things don't align, in other words, if your health issues are preventing you from doing the essential duties of your job, then yes, you most likely should qualify. Doesn't mean the insurance company might not say no, but I see no reason in a situation like that when you've got your doctor's support that you shouldn't be working, that you shouldn't start that process to qualify for disability benefits. And we actually have... Yeah, go ahead, Jim. 
Well, I, I was just going to, it occurred to me that there's a question that might arise for people who are listening about, okay, well, if I'm limiting what I'm saying to my employer, if I have to tell everything to my insurer, what difference does right. it make? Hmm. There is information that is shared between the insurer and the employer, but not the underlying information about your health. Your employer, assuming you're, this is part of a group benefits package, you're, you're covered for long-term disability as part of your group health plan. Your employer will be notified that you have started the process. So when you apply, they'll be notified that you have submitted an application. And then they'll be notified what the insurer's decision is on that application. And if your status changes in the disability process, then your employer will also be informed about that. But your employer cannot be advised by the insurer about those underlying issues. The same thing, the same things that I was just saying you don't have to tell your employer are the very things that the insurer cannot tell the employer also. So it isn't as though they'll get it through the back door. They should not. And if they do, that's a very separate issue. That's a privacy issue. And if that happens again, you want to give us a call because that could give rise to a claim as well. Sorry, Tamar, for cutting you off there. No, all good. I just I wanted to add to the fact that um, this this question around you, do you help people apply for long term disability benefits? I mean, not necessarily. We have a great team. I, I think of one or two people on our team uh, that actually have assisted people to apply for long term. We actually have a really good guide on one of our websites called ltdfaq.ca about applying for long-term disability benefits. And so if people are interested in accessing that kind of information, we have lots of info out there. And by all means, if there are certain questions or issues that you're stumbling on, uh, give us a call. I mean, it, you know, our consults are absolutely free and, and we're happy to speak with people and, and hold their hand through that that uh, that initial stage of, of applying for LTD. We're down to our last couple of minutes, guys. Literally, I'll throw this one quickly to you tomorrow. You can answer. It's a short email. Lena says, guys, I'm on long-term disability for depression for over three years now. If and when I'm ready to work, do I have to go back to my old workplace or can I start a new job with a new company? I don't want to go back to my old workplace. Yeah, <laughs> I get that a lot, Lena. I, I totally understand that. No, I mean, no one's going to force you to go back to your old workplace, but just bear in mind that it, two, two things. Number one, make sure you're getting full endorsement from your own medical team about returning to work that I cannot emphasize that enough. Do not buckle under the pressure of the insurer or the insurer's assessment or the cutting me off. The starting point is always your own health team about making that attempt. And then, then the question becomes, do you return back to your old place workplace or not? And the key consideration there is, is actually in my mind, insurance. And just bear in mind that if you're starting a new workplace, you're resetting the clock for eligibility and coverage for disability benefits and, and other group benefits. You're going to likely have a waiting period. You may be subject to you know, an initial uh, period where what we call is the, the pre-existing condition timeframe, that first year of LTD, where all of your health issues are fair game if you do go off on disability again. And so you may not be protected by the policy and the employer that exists currently, the one that you've got right now. So just go into it with your eyes wide open uh, and understand that there could be consequences to that. And with that, we are just about done for this particular show. I'll give you some final contact information to reach out to James or Tamar or their teams. Uh, you can always do so. 
confidently and confidentiality, of course, is 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 key. One eight five five eight two one fifty nine hundred. The number again. One eight five five eight two one fifty nine hundred. Help at disabilityrights.ca for email, and you want to ask any other questions through your uh, phone, tablet, desktop, no problem. MyDisabilityQuestions.com, and we'll catch you next time on the Disability Law Show. The preceding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Chorus Entertainment.